Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Living Room's Corner Podcast, a podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking to Chris Perez, who is the pastor at Christ Crucified Fellowship. Yeah, and we're really excited about this conversation. Rich also authored a book called Casa Uptown, and we're going to talk with him a little bit about that. And uh, the, the reason we were able to... And the reason why we were able to talk with him is thanks to our guys at Citizens Akron for, for allowing this interview to happen whenever the Together Conference is there. Um, we got a chance to sit down with Rich. We really talked with him um, for a good while, and it was... Yep, it was it was a fresh conversation. Not only to, 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 to not just um, get to listen to through the podcast, which I mean we're glad that you can listen to it through the podcast, but but it was so awesome to be there and just to feel how, how passionate he was and how intense how intense the, you know he was about this whole situation and, and the conversation we were having was phenomenal. However, before we get into our podcast Uh-oh. or our conversation with Rich, what are we doing? We have our Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. So the resource of the week um, is a podcast that just launched, um, and it's by Pastor Chad Veach of Zoe Church, which is a church in the Los Angeles area. Uh, Chad Veach is, by the way, he's a great follow on Instagram. Go follow him on Instagram. Um, but he just launched a podcast, and it's called Leadership Lean In with Chad Veach. And his first guest was Jeremy Foster, who is a pastor at um, a church called Hope City Church. Go check that out; it was great. Uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to listen to this podcast. Um, so it's going to be a it's going to be coming back around. I think they're I think he said that he's doing um, bi week two two episodes a week or uh, a month. Um, so great, great, uh, great podcast. I really enjoyed it, and Chad's really engaging and, and really a fun guy just to listen to talk. So. I would suggest going and listening to that. That has been your Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. Now, as we mentioned, today we're talking with Rich Perez. And so without any further wait, we're going to jump into our conversation right now. Well, Rich, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. You know, just as we get started, uh, tell, tell us a little bit of your story for people who may not be familiar with you. Yeah, so I'll give you guys, I'll give you guys the abridged version of that story. Um, so, born and raised in Uptown, New York City, uh, northernmost part of the island of Manhattan. If you're trying to situate yourself, um, we're just below the Bronx. We are in the neighborhood. If you are a theater person or a film person, we are in the part of the island of Manhattan that Lin Manuel made famous for mm-hmm. his Broadway show, In the Heights. Uh, so I got, have you have you seen it? Oh, I've seen it four times. Yeah. Does it live up to the hype? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, he does an incredible job to capture the story of the locals' experience in that part of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, that's where I'm from. Yeah. Washington Heights, Inwood. Uh, us locals call it the Dykeman area. You know, locals usually <laughs> have their own name, and then you have the real estate name. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so Dykeman is what we call it. But I'm from there. My parents are both immigrants from the Dominican Republic. My dad came in 1979 to New York City, or, or immigrated to New York City in 1979. 
set up shop, find work, find home. My mom came in 81, two years after with my older sister. Uh, and then I came in 84. Uh, so I was born in 84. I was born into your, what is your typical inner city New York immigrant hip hop culture. Um, and so I was, I was born and raised in New York City, uh, raised and loved by my parents, but I felt like hip hop and the sports culture really uh, raised me in a lot mm -hmm. of respects. So anyways, uh, grew up in that environment there. Uh, my parents were nominally Catholic, uh, kind of high holiday Catholics. We would go to, to mass during the big, big, uh, big days, religious days, uh, until my mom got a job as a teacher at a local school in the neighborhood and met uh, a friend called Lihia Medina. Shout her out because she's like my second mom. Uh, but she invited her to a uh, Spanish-speaking Southern Baptist Church in New York City. So you try to figure that out. But well, that's where she went. That's like the weirdest combination yeah, ever. That's like was, the Twilight Zone yeah, stuff. Yeah, it, it was pretty interesting. Uh, you know, I guess Baptistic in, in conviction, uh, but Pentecostal in expression. So that again, we're going into the Twilight Zone yeah, with this. Yeah. yeah. So uh, my mom came to faith in Jesus personally uh, during that time when I was about eight. Uh, as a result of that, myself and my sister and, and later my younger brother uh, were at church. Um, and I think we were at church primarily because we saw kids that looked like us, mm -hmm. um, kids that liked the same things that we liked. And so it wasn't necessarily the church that kept us there. It was just familiarity, people that looked like sure. us. And, uh, until I was about 15, it was my... Uh, uh, going into my sophomore year of high school, uh, I came to faith. I sat in a service and felt like I heard, you know, our pastor preach mm. from the the same message, the same text, and it just this time around, it just it just came alive for me. Connected. Uh, it connected for yeah. me, and so I uh, felt like I had a spiritual encounter with the Lord. Um, came to faith, grew pretty exponentially over the next two years, but struggled because I came to faith. Um, at a at probably the most formative years of of an adolescent's life, like sure. junior senior yep. year of high mm -hmm. school, I played sports, played baseball, played basketball, and at that time we didn't have Steph Curry's that made faith <laughs> and sports cool. <laughs> so I felt like the sports culture and the my faith were kind of clashing. Mm. I took that ambiguity into my first year of college. I again played basketball in college. And I just, I felt like I made a mess of my life that first semester, made a mess of my life, definitely academically, uh, but spiritually, I felt like I hit a wall and had a pretty significant moment uh, on one night during the semester, called my mom and she gave me uh, words that I'll never forget. Uh, she just encouraged me to come back home and it was just welcoming. It wasn't even necessarily what she said. It was her posture that was very welcoming. It wasn't, uh, you know, she didn't wig out when she realized that I, I confessed some really ugly things to her. Uh, she just embraced me, uh, welcomed me. She said, hey, you always have a place here, so whenever you're ready, just come back home. And I did. Plugged into a college in the city, lived with my parents. Um, and I guess that space, uh, along with accountability, just helped my faith to flourish. Mm -hmm. 
you know, fast forward 2007, got married. My wife and I moved up to uh, West New York, uh, Northwest New York State, um, with the intentions to move back to New York City to plant this church. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just, we were very eager to come back to my neighborhood and, and start the church. And we still had a lot of questions. But those three years were really important for us. We got married, had my firstborn, Josiah. Uh, who's here with me on the trip and um came back we started the church we failed the first time around <laughs> we just i went back to teaching which is what i was doing yep. before that did some high school teaching uh and then started about a year and a half later and didn't do very many things different from the first time uh it, i guess it was really just the lord's timing mm. um and it just flourished i mean we grew pretty pretty quickly and we had our first Sunday service, Easter of 2012, and we just celebrated six years. I mean, a lot that happened in between. Well, sure, um, yeah. A lot happened yeah. in between. That's all good stories. But oh, as no. I said, the abridged version, the Lord took <laughs> us through some really cool things, some really hard things. Um, but we're here, and we're grateful. What was so. something that you learned kind of coming through that season where you had a failure, and then it started and then it goes what was something that you learned maybe about maybe in faith or leadership or just kind of coming through that season sometimes it's timing uh you know uh sometimes we look at certain things in our lives uh certain endeavors certain efforts that we make and sometimes it almost doesn't make sense why it may not be working it seems like you've got all the right components you've done all the right things to prepare yourself and and it and it still flops Right. And you, you know, we're really good at trying to find reasons why things fail. Um, and I guess that season just taught me like, man, it, it wasn't necessarily necessarily anything you did or didn't do. It was just not the right time. And yeah, I had to learn how to accept that uh, because timing is an interesting thing. Like it, it affects timing is perhaps that one thing that triggers our anxiety more than anything else. Because mm. we it's hard for us to live in a world that we don't run mm. it's hard to live in a world that we don't determine the outcomes and it's hard to say no to control and so control has everything to do with timing yep or timing has everything to do with control and so i think a lesson i'd learn if i had to synthesize all that is sometimes the reason things don't happen is because of timing yep. and it's not because it's wrong or anything else it's just timing mm. so how have you gotten better at accepting that? Because that's tough. <laughs> How have I gotten better <laughs> at accepting? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think you just, you live a little and you realize mm -hmm. you, I, if you give yourself to just living a little, and what I mean by that is engaging relationships honestly, engaging your circumstances honestly, you'll realize, oh, I'm, I'm not in control of most of the things I thought I was in mm -hmm. control. Um, and honestly, I just, I, I think, uh, being in like jagged relationships, mm -hmm. they, they, they humble you. Yeah. I think there's a reason why first Peter five Peter is the one that says, humble yourself under the ha mighty hand of God. Like, I think there's a reason why Peter was the author of those words. <laughs> um, because Peter was uh, the one character oh. that was probably hum humiliated the most. Um, and so. I, I don't know that that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. specifically answers your question, but I think you just, you embrace humility, you embrace a little bit of mystery, you embrace a little bit of um, not being in control 
um, and you embrace that in small pockets so that when it happens in major ways, you're not surprised mm -hmm. by the fact that you're not in control of this or that. So yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, though. yeah, that definitely makes sense. So you've authored a book also called Mikasa Uptown. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the book and uh, what, what made you want to write this book. So I shared with uh, one of the brothers earlier that um, about two years into when we planted the church, I got invited to a meeting with a bunch of pastors. Um, it's kind of like these monthly meetings where pastors or leaders, church leaders go to to just refresh themselves mm -hmm. and engage, network, that kind of stuff. That meeting, there was going to be a panel uh, of which there was going to be a kind of longtime pastor in the city. Uh, a pastor that's dealing with, you know, multi-ethnic uh, contexts. Uh, and then they wanted like a young church planner. And so they invited me to be that, that, that young church planner that shared in the panel. And I was a little nervous because I was just like, man, I, I feel like I kind of want to come into this space and learn a little bit more. And, you know, maybe more of what I would share are the things that I've failed at, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I go in, I share these like eight lessons that I've learned and mind you, I'm the last one to speak and I'm just like, how do you follow these guys? Whatever. Mm -hmm. Point is I share these eight things that I've learned. Um, and you know, to my surprise, the Lord used a lot of those older men to, um, encourage me and say, Hey, this, you need to write this down. Like this needs mm -hmm. to be a book. And so long story short, my book. Mikasa Uptown is essentially this little talk I gave at this pastor's meeting, you know, in 2013, 2014, mm -hmm. four years later, you know, we, we, we launched Mikasa Uptown. What inspired it? Um, man. So I've always said that I've, I've felt called to pastoral ministry, you know, that, that was very clear, but I think as strong as my call to pastoral ministry was my call to place. I felt very strong about the place I wanted to be a pastor in. Um, I love my neighborhood. I love my neighborhood. I love my city, but I particularly love my neighborhood because it's all I've known. And I know that that could be a disadvantage sometimes. Mm. But I, the narrative for the inner city kid is if you're going to be successful, if you're going to make it, if you're gonna hit, if you're going to hit big, you've got to get out of here. That's the narrative of the inner city kid. Like, man, listen, you got to get out the hood if, if you want to make something right. of yourself. And I wrestled with that uh, because I actually, it made me frustrated to hear that. And it made me frustrated that that was true because it was. It was the narrative that inner city kids uh, were sold. And I said, but what if it's not? What, what, if, what if I can stay and, and, and still do something meaningful? What if I can stay? And so essentially I asked myself the question, what if I change the narrative? What if familiarity didn't breed contempt, which it typically does? What if it bred and produced love instead? And so that I kind of just led with that question. And I took some of those talking points from that one talk I gave at the pastor's meeting and I, I just started shaping it. And I couldn't fathom a place that would years later when i was gone still be telling the same story i mm -hmm. couldn't fathom I, I i i didn't want to accept that and so um yeah i was inspired in in large part by the narrative that was there 
um, to tell a different story. And it was very important for me to tell the story. It was very important for me that I told the story. Um, because you get people that can come in and, you know, they'll be excited about the narrative that exists there and they'll be the one to want to tell the story, but they don't tell the story as it actually is because they just don't have that vantage point. Mm -hmm. I said, I think the story is important, but as important as the story is the storyteller. And so I thought it was really important for me to do that and to capture that from my experiences as this hybrid child, right, that grew up speaking Spanish at home, speaking English everywhere else, you know, listening to Spanish music at home, listening to Nas and Jay-Z growing up, listening... Eating, you know, arroz and habichuela, rice and beans at home, to eating pizza and French fries, everything <laughs> else. And, and those are just the external tensions. Sure. I mean, mm-hmm. there are the internal struggles to navigating two cultures and navigating two worlds. And oftentimes what I realize is people want to peg you into one or the other. And I said, but I think there's something beautiful about existing in the tension of those two worlds. Mm-hmm. I think that things are birthed out of that tension that can't be birthed if you stayed in either of these one places. And so what does it look like for me to tell my story as I experienced it? Not to convince anybody, not to educate somebody. I mean, if you get educated when you read the book, then great. If you learn something when you read the book, then fantastic. But really, this is for the purpose of storytelling. Um, How do I do that from my vantage point and show its beauty, beauty? and show its tensions and show its ugliness and say, well, you know, I'm here for all of it. You know what I mean? Like, and we should be here for all of it too. So there was a lot of different things that kind of came together to inspire the writing of the book. Um, storytelling is also very important for me because I think it's a powerful tool to like engage people. Jesus did it a lot. Jesus <laughs> did it a lot. You know, this one guy that we know, you know, he did it a lot. Right? He did. So, and the and the and the and the significance of place I thought was really important. So mm-hmm. you 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 take you take uh, family, faith, imagination, and place, and you kind of put it all together. It's essentially what the book is. Mm-hmm. This intersection of all these things. Talk a little bit more about like the significance the significance of place and kind of what you mean by that. Yeah. So you know. I don't know if we do this just as Western thinkers, but we tend to uh, read the Bible from a uh, lens or vantage point that's very removed mm-hmm. in some ways, very removed from the context it was written in. And mm-hmm. so, man, what I mean by place is from the very beginning uh, of the story of God, place was such a prominent component of what he was actually doing. Yeah. And he took Abraham, he, he, he existed in this space. Yeah. God existed in this space. And then he made room for others to exist there with him, Adam and Eve. Uh, the moment Adam, Adam and Eve decided to, um, you know, not trust God, but trust themselves, God removed them from that space because it was no longer a space for them to coexist because of God's beauty and holiness and purity. And had a new place for them to go. And he had a new place for them to go. So he exiles them from that place into this new place for them to go. God calls Abraham out of his place Mm -hmm. and promises to take him to a new place. Mm -hmm. Uh, God takes Moses out of his space and he brings him into this space to shape and form him in the wilderness. So 
you know, where he met his wife, essentially. <laughs> and then he brings him back to bring Israel mm-hmm. out of that place, to bring him into. And so you follow that trajectory all through scripture. And then you realize you get to Jesus. And here's a guy who has no place to lay his head. Yet mm-hmm. he promises a place for people who would trust in him. I mean, place has a real, tangible, geographical significance to the way that we are spiritually formed. So all that into real time, real place, real people. Um, now, um, like, yeah, what role will your context play in your spiritual formation? How will you know the story of that context, the dreams? Uh, you know, I, I talk about this in the book, but what are the dreams of your city? What are the ambitions of your city? What are the, what are the pleasures and displeasures, the fears, the hopes of your city? Um, I think it's really important that we know those because, one, not only is it good for mission's sake, and, you know, we could talk about mission and all that stuff at another point, but not only is it good for mission's sake, but I think it's good for spiritual formation place because I think that God uses space mm. and place to form you in the ways that he wants to. I mean, you take, for example, the, I think it was Joshua um, where the Lord helped them to cross the Jordan Mm-hmm. Um, and as they cross, as a way to commemorate that yeah. moment, God told Joshua, say, hey, go back into the water and grab some stones, mm. bring those places out and put those stones into this place. And he says, for what? So that you would remember what I did in this place. And so I think space and place uh, plays such a significant role. I don't know that we often, and by we, I mean, um, Westerners, Americans, sometimes we have a hard time processing that because at least for us, space is something that we don't value as highly as, say, other cultures, right? You look at other cultures, like just take, for example, First Nation culture, um, space and place is pretty significant Mm. to them from, from their philosophies and their ways of thinking. Um, they they really they deeply value space. They deep, deeply value the earth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and for us that sounds myth mystic mystical. Uh, but in many ways, I think that there's something beautiful about the way that they value space and the earth that teaches them something about how to treat it, how to steward it. You know, you go back to Adam and Eve and how God commanded them to care for the for the earth and to you know help it to produce uh, what they need. I just feel like we, we we need we need to have a different relationship with space, so that uh, so that we can faithfully walk in some of the things that I think God has commanded us to. Mm-hmm. It's a big philosophical thought, but anyways, <laughs> to, to your question of space and yeah. place, you know, I think there's something there to explore. Well, I think it's it's significant because I mean we see some of the other uh, major world religions, Islam in particular, mm-hmm. where I mean they have holy places, holy cities, yeah. right? Mecca, mm-hmm. all these different places that. That their significant, I mean, their significance mm-hmm. in a physical location. Mm-hmm. So, so definitely. So it's like, what role do they play for us? Yeah, right, exactly. yeah. right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And and do Christians have a connection to Jerusalem? Well, yeah, but is it the same as as, as a Muslim would have with Mecca? Sure. I don't know if that sure. relationship sure, is the sure. same. Sure. Um. So that, that, yeah, it's just an interesting thing. So one of the things that that you talk about, um, it, with when it, whenever you talk about neighborhood, um the word neighbor right so mm-hmm. that's in that's in the word mm-hmm. and 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 i think that you have an interest you have some interesting ideas about being on mission and what it means to love 
our neighbor, mm-hmm. um, particularly as it comes to this context of things that you wrote in, in your book. So can you just talk to us a little bit about um, what what does it mean to you to love your neighbor, and, and how does this play out missionally um, for in particular for you as as a church body you're you're leading yeah. um, a local a local church. Talk to us a little bit about what it means to be a good neighbor to you and, and how that tangibly plays out. Yeah. Um. <laughs> nice softball question right there for you. <laughs> I just had – The State Farm was just like all over my mind right now. As you, as you right, right. I had a bunch of State Farm jokes, but I'll hold off. So uh, that's every middle school boy's mm-hmm. joke in small group. Like as soon as you talk about being a good neighbor, they're like, State Farm is there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Man. Hoo-wee. Yeah, I, 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 I think I'd begin. So I think. It's hard to talk about being a good neighbor without talking about hospitality. Mm. And hospitality um, is a big theme within the book. Um, I, I talk about hospitality in in the way uh, in a way that I think goes beyond just the concept of opening up a physical space. Um, and you know, I, I kind of make a joke of it, but you know. Hospitality, if reduced only to opening the doors of your home, really narrows who can be hospitable. Because right. in you know in New York, we sometimes sometimes we barely have a door to open. And y'all yell at each other so much. Uh, yeah, we do. We do so much. The decibel levels are, are, are loud. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm pretty cool right That's now. That's a so. different culture yeah. from Ohio. That yeah, is different. Yeah. I, I I enjoy seeing it from afar, but <laughs> sometimes it scares <laughs> me a little bit. I'm like, yeah, so much yelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So you know, hospitality can't be reduced to simply a physical thing. It it has right. to be a deeply relational, emotional mental thing where you open up the doors to your life but particularly to or for the purpose of offering to others the very things that refresh you and i think mm. that's a big big key to the way that we define hospitality because it says hey i won't this is hospitality isn't simply a dinner party it isn't simply a having over friends when you think about hospitality in its in its natural context of of the new testament you're talking about Essentially, the love of strangers. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, literally, the love of strangers is what the word means in the Greek. And so this has to go far beyond just a dinner party with friends, uh, which I think we would romanticize to is the idea. hospitality. Yeah. We yeah. think of Jesus sitting at the table with tax collectors and sinners, maybe. But Peter, James, and John are there, too. Sure. And all of his people are there. Yeah. And it's safer. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is there's a much deeper piece to this yeah. that goes into a whole other thing that makes people very uncomfortable. Oh, very uncomfortable. And I was sh- I was sharing with some brothers yesterday that um, hospitality is risky, but we don't perceive hospitality as risky in our kind of Western mind perceptions. Mm-hmm. We d- we don't we just think it's ah oh, this is great. And we give some language around it and, yeah, have people over, invite them into your space. But we very seldom talk about how risky hospitality is. I mean, true hospitality is Mm. risky in that you are opening up your life to some really deep, vulnerable things and inviting people into spaces 
so that they would be refreshed. So, you know, when I when you when you ask what does it mean to be a neighbor, I think being a neighbor means being deeply involved in the lives of the people around you, um, and that takes faith. Uh, it takes courage and it takes a level of hospitality that goes beyond what we've defined it. How does that impact the church? Well, I think in our in our cultural moment, it helps to repair the poor perception that people have of the church. And I think people have a poor perception of the church. And that's a very nice way to say that. But rightfully so, I think the church has failed in many respects to be. It's not an unearned thing. Uh, I mean, it's definitely something that the church in many ways has earned. Yeah, yeah, it's a legitimate perception. And so I think my opinion is that um, authenticity and hospitality are is our generation's apologetic. I don't think it's a matter of clear argument. I think that, that plays its role in evangelism or even mission. But I don't think it's about clear arguments. I think people are... I don't think that people are not Christian because they don't understand what Christianity is about. Mm. I think people choose not to follow Jesus or not be Christian because they have not seen the power of following that faith demonstrated from the church. Mm. Um, and I believe that hospitality and authenticity, which go hand in hand, is going to be our generation's apologetic. People want to see the power of this message that we believe demonstrated. And I think that bears on our mission in significant ways. Can you just, as so switching from, from you, the person, to you know this, the pastor side, yeah. can you just preach to us for a minute about maybe, maybe the thing that go, that's going on that, that makes it so that we want to resist that to the point where, you know, we have, and I'm not, not necessarily to get political, but I mean, some of the craziness mm -hmm. over the last couple of months that goes on where people have almost irrational ideas as to, to why we need maybe to, to separate people and keep people away. And, and we want, you know, the borders and all these things. Mm -hmm. Talk to us as a pastor about what, why do we resist that? And, and how can, how can we begin to make the change? What, we, what, what needs to make a change so that we can begin to go there? Yeah. Everything's political, man. Honestly, it, it, what it, what it, yeah. what is politics but just public life? Mm. Like in its in its simplest form, politics is public life, mm. public practice. Um, and that could be expressed in the form of the government. That could be expressed in the form of education. That could be expressed in the form of policies and art. But but politics is in essence the decisions that we make to live our public lives. Mm. And so in that sense, everything we discuss is, is political. Like everything yeah. is political because everything is undergirded by our views of the world and how we ought to engage in public space. So everything is political, really. But how, I guess you got to remember, I'm coming at this from the context of a you know global city like New yep. York mm -hmm. right so this might not necessarily fall as neatly but on it's it. yeah. but it's very important for people to hear it because I mean Caleb and I we, we've grown up in very rural areas sure where um 
for us, we hear a lot of the same things echoed. Sure. By poli- that, that politicians are saying, we've heard those things echoed by people we know in our life. Mm-hmm. And so when people talk to us uh, and, and give us perspectives that we might not have, have heard growing up, it's important because it's important to have perspective. Yeah, I agree. So, so share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Act like we're in no. <laughs> or that we need to know because we need to know. Sure, sure. So you know, a uh, uh, part of this conversation is the com- is the is the component of spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. In other words, how are we? What what are the spaces that we're creating for ourselves to be spiritually formed to look like Jesus? Right. Mm-hmm. By and large, in our nation's history, I think. When we talk about spiritual formation, that has been, by and large, reduced to only have a spiritual component. In other words, are you engaging God's word? Are you finding yourself in community? Are you, are you praying to the Lord? All of which are deeply important, right? So please don't hear me minimize those things. But we've, only, but we've reduced the impact of Jesus' message to just spir- the spiritual component. And it well, very good at the vertical part. Very good at the vertical part in terms of spiritual formation. In, sp- in terms of spiritual formation, but there's a horizontal piece, and I think that's what you're getting. Correct. At. There is a social impact to mm-hmm. the message of Jesus, to the message of the kingdom of God. Um, and I think that I was I was sharing with a brother earlier that. These are these are the crowds that would say, well, man, let's just talk about Jesus or let's just talk about the gospel. Um, if, if I'm ever in a conversation where I talk about, hey, this is how I think, you know, th- we, we should be talking this and in these spaces and, you know, everything from like the housing crisis or, you know, education or, hey, man, how are we thinking about politics? And man, let's just let's do what we're meant to do, which is to talk about Jesus, talk about his gospel, be at church and and we're good. And I'm like, so you have literally washed your hands of what the gospel is capable of doing in our social context. And so you've you've drained the gospel of its power. And so I think the reason to your question, why are we so why why do we so easily resist um engaging in this way is I think that we've done one a good job at like starving the gospel message and its impact mm-hmm. from it's more lateral impact. Mm-hmm. And in the process of that, I think that we've missed that the gospel and salvation to that gospel isn't a personal thing as much as it is a communal thing. We've, we've, I think we've done a disservice in, in oh man, I don't want to get jealous. Listen, I, I, love, I love everything that you know, heroes like Billy Grahams have done for our world. But I think in his era, particularly, we've mm-hmm. made this like personal salvation mm-hmm. thing. I think, and I think that that's really hurt the Christian expression in America because while we, we need are fire insurance, yeah, fire insurance, and um, we've 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 reduced the salvation experience to the individual. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think salvation, in God's mind, in all of His narrative, was a communal. Thing. Um, corporate with Israel, corporate with Israel yeah. in particular. Um, so I think we've we've been good at that, which is what's made us good to to resist. The other thing I'd say to that is, 
you know, the book of Amos is is probably really important to this conversation uh, because part of the charge that Amos is bringing to, um, you know, the northern kingdom is he's saying y'all, y'all have intertwined faith and your your kingdom so much that it's indistinguishable to you. Mm-hmm. And there's this one particular passage in chapter five where Amos goes to the temple of the northern kingdom. Remember, if you know the history of yep. the northern and southern kingdom, it's like this is not Jerusalem. This is Salem. All right. Um, or Shechem. Anyways, you he, were, I just got to say you are speaking like Todd's love language right now. Yeah. He loves the Old Testament. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, have, I have a degree in Bible and theology. Oh, <laughs> man. Listen, so you're you're the one then. you're the one. But he goes into the temple and he's confronted by Amaziah. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeroboam II's priest. And Amos goes into the temple and he says, essentially, this is the rich version, but he says, y'all are wildin'. This ain't the way y'all supposed to be doing And he this. said it exactly like this. And he did. He did. He said it exactly like this. It's Go in the Hebrew him. just like this. Yep. I'm telling you. He says, y'all are wildin'. You need to go check yourself before you wreck yourself kind of thing. That's what he said. That's what he said. <laughs> and Amaziah essentially says, hey, don't be coming up in here talking crazy. This is, and then he goes on to say, this is exactly what he says, actually. He says, <laughs> he says, this is the king's temple. Mm. And so his defense, Amaziah's defense was, yo, this is the king's temple. And Amos is like, oh, hold on, I thought this was the Lord's temple. Mm-hmm. And so the charge here, the charge here is y'all have made alliance to the king and alliance to God indistinguishable. And it's led you to believe that when you rise up in defense of your king, right, because all of us have personal interests, national interests that we want to protect, perhaps at all costs. And the moment that our national or personal interests are uh, challenged, we think that to rise up in defense of our nation is the same is the same as rising up in defense of God's kingdom. We think that to rise up in defense of our nation's leaders is the same as rising up in defense of God. We think that to rise up in defense of our nation's laws is the same to rise up uh, to rise up against uh, to rise up and defend uh, God's na- uh, God's heavenly laws, and they're they're not they're not always the same. You know, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King was famously quoted for saying, "You know, we'll follow we'll follow man's law so long as they align with God's law." And so I think uh, all this to come back to your question: Why do you think that we resist? I just think we have a love affair with our nation. We have a love affair with our interest. Um, and until we uh, untether ourselves from our personal and national interests, we will have a hard time building the kingdom of God. I think a lot of our listeners probably fall into the same category that Caleb and I do. Um, maybe not the rural part, but definitely majority culture. Mm-hmm. And and you're coming from a culture that's vastly very different than that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it, where you pastor and and where you grew up mm-hmm. and and when i think when they hear that there's you know and we can go back and and look at the colin kaepernick thing eric reed got signed the other day but oh, yeah. i mean there's that yeah, going yeah. on and, and 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 over and over again and and all of this is tainted and tinged with um this nationalistic patriotism thing i think that you're that you're talking about there's so much vitriol that comes as soon as this is brought up, and in particular from that I'm seeing from Christians. So, Rich, I guess the, the thing that I'm thinking is, oh, my goodness, 
what how how besides without just saying jesus <laughs> how does this begin to turn because i think that people are really realizing in in real time that this is so ugly and so wrong yeah and and there's this thing that tells us this is wrong how do we change this how do we how do we begin to to turn this back and i know that's a huge question sure, and i'm not sure. expecting you to to have this you know all the answers but how can we begin to change that? Because I think there's so many people out here going, you know, but, 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 but. Yeah. It's like, but what? <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about, about what we can begin to do to, to change some of that idea. Yeah, that's a good question. Good question. You know, I think, I think we've got we've to be good at, so a few things, I guess I could say, you know, some practical, some kind of like philosophical and, and, and spiritual postures that we need to take. On the spiritual posture side, I think by and large, we've become a very prayerless culture, mm. very prayerless culture. I don't know that we talk to God as much as we should, and I don't know that we ask him questions as much as we should, and I don't know that we let him ask us questions and talk to us as much as we should. And so I, I, by prayer culture, I mean a dynamic, prayer culture, one that uh, embraces a little bit of mystery um, in your prayer life, like embrace a little bit of mystery, know that you may come to God with some qu questions and he won't always give you an answer, um, pray, know that when you come to God in prayer, it'll feel very lifeless sometimes, you know, just read Habakkuk, <laughs> maybe. Yes. You, you know, you just read Habakkuk and you're how like, how long, oh Lord? How long, oh Lord? And it's just like, he didn't respond until the very yeah. end and the response felt a little insufficient. You know what I mean? So it's just like, be okay to embrace yeah. the mystery of prayer, but also be, make a decision to commit to talk to God. You know, part of what unbelief does is that it talks about God rather than talk to God. Mm. And so I think that if we had a culture that perhaps was more committed to, even in their unbelief, talk to God. Even in their doubt, talk to God. I, I told somebody earlier today that I don't think that the opposite of faith is doubt. I think the opposite of faith is arrogance. I think doubt is helpful. Doubt is helpful. Because it is in our doubt that God brings us to himself he it's those doubts that force us to ask questions and oftentimes they draw us to god arrogance doesn't even leave room for questions you got this you you'll take care of this and so i think that we need to embrace some of that mystery we need to embrace some of that questioning and asking god and talking to him rather than talking about him and, and making a commitment to doing that but in a in a highly intellectual and theologically arrogant society, it's no surprise that we have kind of a uh, waning spiritual life, uh, spiritual conversations with God. We're a very in theologically, intellectually arrogant culture, and I think it's kept us from having a deep, um, a deep kind of conversation relationship with God. Uh, so I would say that on uh, to answer your question on the spiritual posture side, of which will necessitate humility. Mm -hmm. right? It'll necessitate humility. And I don't think I have to explain that as much, but 
practically, how are we or how are you, listener, engaging in these conversations locally? Well, you're not going to change the world if you can't even change your block. Mm. You know, you're not going to. This is part of my gripe with like world missions sometimes with churches, you know, like they're known for having reached the world, but, you know, they have no relationships on the block. Street. Yeah. You haven't even gone across the hall. Mm. You haven't even gone across the street. Um, how, you know, God is gracious to have even used them to, to cause impact on the other side of the world. But at any rate, uh, I would, I would encourage, how are you having honest, how are you honestly assessing yourself? And how are you honestly assessing your immediate context? And how are you not, you're not, so it's not just listening. Don't just sit and listen, but now move from listening to engaging. Go from engaging to uh, questions. Hey, how can I, how, what, what role do I play? Mm-hmm. And then go from that to action. I mean, and, and how are you doing that locally? And I think what will happen is that if all of us are engaging in that way, we won't have to think about grand systems of how to tackle this globally. We just, you'll have faithful people that are doing that in their context and coming together to share best practices and mm-hmm. experiences and, and then going back to their context and saying, we're just, we're going to be really good at this right here. Mm-hmm. That we're known for having, to some degree, mastering the art of honesty and reconciliation and power of the kingdom here. Mm-hmm. And we pray that God would use it to have global impact but but I don't I don't aim for the global impact as much as I aim for the local impact. And I think God is faithful to take that local impact and and stirring some things up mm-hmm. outside of my context. How do you how do you go? Well, I was gonna say, and that even goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. Yeah. Place. Correct. Of doing that yeah. in your place, and then if God widens the circle, then He widens the circle. Yeah. Praise God if he does, you know, and if he doesn't, then that means he's he's wanted you to like do it here. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that you're any less faithful or that it's less important because you know one of the traps that we get into is that because it's not what we celebrate. Exactly, it's not what we celebrate, and people catch on to what we celebrate. I think about this as a child, you know, like if 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 my son, I was talking, I was telling some of the dudes that ba- uh, street street ba- basketball culture is big in in my neighborhood, and so. There's this overwhelming pressures that dad put on their uh, on their boys to perform, and the kids catch on. Like you know, you see a boy make a nice move or play a nice game, and the fathers celebrate them. But when they do something really bad, they just they trash them, they dog them. Kids make associations. Like I, right, so I need to be good in order to get my dad's celebration. Mm-hmm. I can't fail. No margin for failure because then I'll get dogged. I think I think we also make the same associations and in church planning culture if we catch on to what people celebrate what mm-hmm. are the what are what is the majority celebrating mm-hmm. in the church world well make let me make sure that I'm doing that so that I too would be celebrated mm-hmm. so I think it's a matter of this is why I think it's so much more pervasive than we think so like we have to change metrics we have to change what we celebrate and I don't know how willing. Now, now you're speaking my language. 
we have to change the way we measure things and we have to change the way that we celebrate things. Otherwise, people are, even if they resist, mm -hmm. like, no, that's, I'm, that there's, there's something not faithful about that. Like, there's something that I just can't vibe with. Even if they resist internally, they're going to deal with this, mm. but I'm not being celebrated. And mm. in many cases, sadly, they'll succumb to that and they'll be like, well, I guess I got to do that in order to be celebrated. I'm mm -hmm. like, but that, that's not what you were meant to do, yeah. bro. That's not a metric you should hold over yourself. And I say that tongue in cheek, but you know, I, I've, I've had those wrestles. I've had to deal with some of those, uh, the anxiety that comes from that as a pastor and a church planner. And I, yeah, I just think we have to change some of the metrics and that's a much larger conversation. Cause mm -hmm. then we're saying, well, why don't you want to change your metrics? Why do you want to hold on to some of that? Well, because you want to celebrate this or you want to celebrate power you want to celebrate privilege and you want to keep things the same. And I'm like, well, they will stay the same then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so will the outcomes of what we produce. So I just think it's, it's such a domino effect. It's such a layered conversation, but yeah. What do you personally do to foster going all the way back to the neighbor thing? Mm -hmm. So Jesus gives, you know, room for listeners. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you haven't heard this before. But um, you know, Jesus gives us the greatest command, and there's 613 laws that were given in the Old Testament, and then Jesus goes, see that? Watch this. And he squishes the whole thing down and said, you know, they will know you, that, that you belong to me by your love for mm -hmm. one another. How do you foster that in yourself? How do you continue to refresh the, and go back to the well and say, hey, how am I loving others well? How am I good, being a good neighbor? How am I loving my neighbor as myself? How do you foster that and continue to go back to the well? Because you're the person who's going in front of people and telling other people that they need to do this. Yeah. How as a pastor do you do that? Yeah. So, you know, there's two questions that I ask our leaders all the time. And they, they've kind of served as a, as a form of metric measurement for us. Um, is your love for God deepening? Is your compassion for others widening? Um, and we just keep repeating those questions and they're kind of like check marks mm. for us, not check marks, but milestones, they're things that we ask ourselves every so often. Uh, and so I say that to say, I, I have to ask myself that. Mm. And so how do I foster patience, love, sacrifice, mercy, the ability to peace make? I foster those things because love is bound in those things. Mm. Without giving, you know, so I so I'll give what what I think are kind of like the churchy spiritual answers, and then I'll give <laughs> some of the ambiguous things that I'm wrestling through. Yeah. Right. So the things that are really valuable spiritually, you know, spiritual disciplines are: Am I engaging with God's word? Now, let me say a few things about engaging God's word. Uh oh. Because what I don't mean when I say read God's word is read the Bible more. That's not what I mean. I think what I mean is read the Bible differently. I think, and by, and by that, for those of you that are kind of familiar with this kind of language, I think what I'm asking for is a new hermeneutic. I'm asking people to have a different process by which they understand God's word. And what does hermeneutic mean for the So hermeneutic is the is the science or the process by which you read God's word and extract from it what you what God intends yeah. to say to you. Mm -hmm. Um have a new way of 
finding truth and discovering truth in God's word because especially if you're a listener and you're in a context where it's overtly religious or Christian, I'm not saying read the Bible more because you could read the Bible till your face is blue. But if your hermeneutic is the same, you're going to keep doing the same things and you're going to keep interpreting it in the same way. Uh, There's an author. His name is Justo Gonzalez. He's a Cuban-American teacher. I love him. He has this book called uh, Santa Biblia, Reading the Bible Through Hispanic Eyes. Um, and what he does is he helps us to see that hermeneutics isn't as linear as we treat mm-hmm. it. And it, it isn't as black and white. It isn't as in and out as we think. There's nuance to interpretation. Um, but he uses, he very profoundly talks about Psalm, 10, uh, Psalm 119, 105. You know, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And he, he describes, I'm going to... M- not I'm gonna paraphrase what he says, but he says, he says, if you're walking down a dark path and you have a lamp, do you look at the lamp or do you look at the path that it lights? It's kind of a rhetorical question, but I think what he's getting at is you don't look at the lamp. You look at the path that it lights. You need the lamp. It is the lamp is necessary, important. You can't go on the path if you don't have the lamp. But if you are on this trek in the dark and are only looking at the lamp, before you know it, you're going to trip, fall, because you, you've, you've focused so much on the light that you've overlooked the purpose of the light, which is to light the path. And in some degree, uh, the light of the lamp is perhaps more important than the lamp itself. Mm. And what he's trying to get at here is we have been a society or a culture that has intensely looked at the light and have forgotten the path that it actually lightens. And um, I th- the reason why I mention this is we, we have to do a better job or we have to commit to saying, can I ask the Bible different questions as I read it as opposed to the same questions that I've always mm-hmm. asked it? Or just asking the Bible questions in general. Or just ask the Bible the questions in general rather one than reading the, things. One that, of the worst things a person, I've, uh, I've, it just drives me insane. One of the worst things a person can do is just read the Bible like it's a story. It's not. It's not just a story. <laughs> it if we if we truly believe that God inspired the Bible, the documents that are contained within the Bible, then that means that God is literally speaking through the Bible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That means we're in a conversation. Mm-hmm. Conversations require people to go back and forth. That means we have to ask. Yep. questions what are questions that you ask the bible when you're reading yeah. yeah 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 so i try to ask the question uh as i literally as i read what i'm reading god who are who are the characters here uh and where do they fall in in their society who are the ones in power who are the ones not in power i think that's really helpful for me because then it helps me to read the vantage point from where the author's coming from who had power, who didn't have power. Uh, and then a question that I think everyone should ask is, how does this lead me to a place where I see Jesus a little more clearly, mm. you know, from this text? And I think this was the claim that Jesus made with the Pharisees and the scribes in John chapter 5, when he says, man, y'all committed so much to staring at the lamp that you missed what it was meant to light. Um, and so, yeah, paraphrasing, but essentially... Uh, you refuse to find life in them, uh, and you refuse to see that they pointed to me, is what he says. And so, 
yeah, questions like that, they help me to kind of decipher what God is doing in that text. So, so again, on the spiritual side, how do I foster love sure. and peace and patience, all that stuff? Um, I read the Bible, but I'm not just reading it again or more. I'm reading it anew is, is what I'm trying to do. Um, and oftentimes, kind of like trailing off of that is prayer. I, I read the Bible and more most of the times I'm like driven to prayer because I'm either confused or kind of, you know, daunting. I'm like so overwhelmed by what God is saying in this text. And so uh, prayer, reading the word and bringing those two things together uh, are really important. Essentially communion. Am I spending time with God, meaningful time, honest time, authentic time with God? Am I communing with him? Um, because if I'm not, people are just going to get rich. Mm. They're not going to get God through rich. They're just going to get rich. And, you know, I'm from the hood, so you might not want to see rich. <laughs> you know, you might not want to see rich. You're going to want to see Jesus, especially when you're acting crazy. You're going to want to see, you're going to want to see Jesus through rich. You don't want to see rich. And, and so, you know, whether that's my I'm wife, you don't want to see, rich. you don't want to see rich, man. I'm just saying, you don't want to see rich. I'm a pretty even kill kind of guy, but still from the hood. So um, whether it's beginning with my wife, my kids, my church, my neighbors, um, I need to be with Jesus mm. and I need to commune with him meaningfully um, so that people get so that people can see Jesus, mm. you know, and they can see Jesus through me and in, in my flesh, in my context. So, Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's if that's helpful to your question. But no, it definitely is. Um, I think it's also also okay normalizing hardship, normalizing hardship in the process. So you know, you asked the question, how do I cultivate love? Right, you will know me by your love for one another. How will I cultivate that? Ironically enough, I think embracing and or normalizing the fact that we won't do that well all the time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the you know John goes on to later say that this is how we witness to the world right by the way that we love one another this is how we convince the world and persuade the world I don't think that that's saying love each other perfectly I think that's what that's saying commit to love commit to loving each other going back to what I mentioned earlier the power to persuade somebody into the faith I think comes in showing our cards. Mm. and showing that we don't have a good hand and that really the only way and the only reason we are here in the fold of God is because of his grace. But if I can't show my hand, you know, my hand being I make poor decisions, I don't always love well, I'm impatient with my kids, I sometimes think unfaithfully, like those are my cards, y'all. And yet I still praise, yet, and yet I'm still here thanking mm-hmm. God, and yet I'm still here enjoying his blessing, and yet I'm still here standing on his promise mm-hmm. to make me a son, to make me a daughter. Like, if I can show my cards as I offer people the invitation to come, I think that shows a lot more power on God's part rather than our ability to be cleaned up or be well put together or man y'all love each other really well and i think the reason why we love each other really well is because someone has loved us really well and 
yeah, we fail, but we forgive each other. Part of loving each mm-hmm. other really well is forgiving each other when we don't love each other well. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that point only leaves room for us to point to Jesus. So, so Rich, just as we're wrapping up, sure. we always have a few questions that we love to ask everybody. And the first one is, what's one thing that's helping you either personally or professionally right now? One thing. Being a dad. Yeah? Yeah, being a dad is helpful. Uh, I think by b- because of what I do, too, you know, my profession is kind of wound up in my personal life as mm-hmm. well. But I think I'd say the same if I wasn't a pastor and if I was in, in the marketplace, say. I think I'd say the same thing. But being a dad has just been such a blessing and a real challenge. I, I love my kids deeply. And um, like I said, I have my son here on this trip. Uh, from New York and I, I just I, I enjoy the ways that he asks simple honest questions that as adults we've just forgotten to ask and there's something about children that embody all that God expects of kingdom citizens mm. you know like and it shows in the ways that Jesus treated them put them front and center like who's who's the greatest yeah. And Jesus is like, <laughs> oh, yeah, here's one. He'll kind of bring them, put them right in the middle. And he says, listen, right. if y'all can't be like this kid, then you have no role, no place in, in the kingdom of God. So I think being a parent mm-hmm. and, and kind of throwing myself into that has taught me a lot about patience, taught me a lot about the importance of words and integrity, which I think is bound up into integrity, the importance yeah. of words and the integrity behind them. And the simplicity of words, right? Like not feeling the need to talk too much, but condensing all of what we want to say into like simple words. And I think it's been good for me as a as a preacher, honestly. I consult my with my son who's ten, my daughter who's six. I want to say almost every week about what I'm preaching because my son is interested. So he'll ask me, "Hey, what are you preaching on this week?" When he'll see me working on the sermon, and I'm like, "Okay, I got to try to explain this to a ten year old," you know. Mm-hmm. And and I gotta try to help him to understand what I'm actually preaching, and so that's helped me professionally. Yeah, right. That's helped me professionally because I've had to like really simplify what I do. But patience, mercy, um, humility. Mm-hmm. I think we as parents don't admit our fault in parenting as much as we do. That we'll say patience, you know, because kids are crazy. It's just like well, also humility because kids are often they have the right posture. And I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? So humility. So yeah, parenting. I definitely say parenting. How would you encourage somebody right now who's eager to learn? And it could be about stuff that, you know, you, you've written about in, in your book or just in general, just want, uh, wanting, having a posture of learning. How would you encourage that person? What you say to them? So I'll, I'll answer that in relation to kind of the social climate that we're living in today, things mm-hmm. regarding race and politics and all that stuff so i'll answer it particularly thinking of that humility is going to be really important so two things humility and willingness slash commitment humility perhaps more on the dominant culture side Mm. um i'll never forget a conversation i had with some african-american friends of mine that are also part of the church and even as a as a as a brown guy, because there's even dynamics within Hispanics and blacks, but, you know, we don't have time for that. But I'll never forget what he said to me. I'll never forget what he said to me. I said, man, I, I, I want to learn some more just about the Af- 
African-American history and just its its context as I lead African-Americans like yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, can you point me in the right direction? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, no. He said, I'm not pointing you in the right direction. <laughs> I, w- I mean, I was so shocked by his answer. It just really took me aback. Um, we talked about it some more, but essentially it was like, Very well intended. But in our age, there's no reason for you to ask me to point you in the right direction. You have more than enough opportunities to learn. You can go to Google. Mm. You, 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 can, you can Google the best book on the topic. And it was a little harsh. You're like, yo, but you could actually help me save some time. Yeah. But, that's, but that's it. We're always thinking about convenience. We're not, we very seldom think about the hard work that it takes even to learn and to educate ourselves. It's like, no, go through the work of what it takes to educate yourself. Don't put the burden on the marginalized group to do more work, to relive their moments just so that you can be educated. Now you go and you educate yourself and then we could talk. Let's talk. Let's talk afterwards. But do the hard work of educating yourself. Don't make me have to relive my trauma. And don't make me have to relive things that you should already be learning. Um, mm. But I, I think that requires a, a different mentality. Different a lot mentality, of humility. Like a lot of humility. About. And then the other piece is willingness. Uh, and this is, I think, for, for any, any side of the conversation. Like, man, be willing to make for peace you know be willing to make for peace let that be your goal right ephesians chapter 2 right what god accomplishes through jesus in tearing down the wall of hostility making a new man making the two into one like be willing to have that as your goal um to make for peace and and perhaps know the difference between making peace and keeping peace i think keeping peace is cowardice because um it's ultimately selfish in that, you know, you keep for peace simply for the purpose of um, preserving status quo and whatever exists. Making peace is unsettling. And peacekeepers kind of get a bad rap and have a bad perception, but they aren't what typically people think they are. Peacekeepers are people that disrupt. They're, they're not people out that are just like mm. shrinking back and taking hits. Peacekeepers are people that disrupt. And so be willing to do what it takes to actually reach the goal of unity. Um, You know, I'll I'll finish with this, but, you know, it's one thing to say that we are family as a theological statement. It's another thing to say that as a social reality. And so we have to work. We have to do the work that comes with feeling like family, not just believing that as a theological statement. Mm -hmm. I think you've given a lot of this already. Um, and some of the and some of the things you just said, but the question would be this: If you could have everybody learn one thing, now that one thing <laughs> could be how to roast a marshmallow, which is my personal favorite. I want sure. I would want everybody to learn how to roast a marshmallow correctly, or it could be something highly philosophical, spiritual, and awesome. What would that one thing be? Man, that's a good question. Because yeah. the marshmallows are important. Like, let's be clear here. <laughs> That's like, clear. this is like, this is a big question. There are all sorts of things. But what's, what's the thing you would want people to know? Hold on. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Man, I really could say anything. Um, I th <laughs> so I think I think that if if you could learn one thing, it, I would encourage people to learn how to ask a good question. Ask a good question. How can you ask a good question? I feel like that would open the door to many things. More than just good conversation. I think it could open the door to some things that, that we long for. So if you if you can learn how to ask a good question, I think that would go a long way. What's what do you think is one thing that can help people ask good questions? Because I know it's a it's a broad thing, but what's what's one thing that do you think can help people ask good or better questions? I think in order to ask a good question, so I say this about basketball, mm -hmm. right? So for, for my sports head out there, in order to have a good ball fake, you have to have a better jump shot. People won't jump for your ball fake if they know you can't shoot. So I would say, I would say, in order to ask a good question, you have to be a better listener. So... Okay, and then finally, what are you learning right now? What am I learning right now? My wife is teaching me how to make more than just uh, ribs and rice. So <laughs> I am learning. <laughs> I am <laughs> a kind of one-track yeah. cooker. I've got one thing on the menu, and that's... Are uh, you a grill or bust guy? No, no, I I can do more. So than we can that. do more than that. Oh yeah, I can okay. do more. I can do more than that. But she's teaching me how to expand my menu. I think partly so that <laughs> she can get me in the kitchen more often. But, yeah. I'm with it. I'm with it, honey. I'm ready to help. So I love it. <laughs> cool. Well, Rich, thank you so much for being on the Learners Corner today. If people want to continue to learn from you, get the book. Where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So uh, we have a website. It's called uh, MikasaUptown.com. Uh, you can find not just the book, but a variety of things there, different items that we're selling, but also blog posts and mm -hmm. our visions, little short stories and films. So it's a kind of catch-all website, but MikasaUptown.com. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I had a blast. Caleb, I love conversations like that just because um, we, we get to, to kind of go out of our comfort zone a little bit. I know that, that you really enjoy conversations like this, too, so I wanted to go to you and just kind of hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think for me, um, man, there's just there's so much to take away. But I think one of the big, uh, one of my big takeaways from it was just the importance of of just loving our neighbors, and whether they they look like us, are come from the same background as us, or different backgrounds from us, whatever it is, just the importance of just loving our communities and and, and especially listening. listening. Yeah. That love oftentimes. But that listening often is a form of love. Well, it is, and and so I guess the thing that that I heard as we were we were kind of going through that interview from him was uh, I think that there's this 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 dichotomy in the church that people believe exists, where you either have to be all about love and inclusivity and, and all that, or you have to be all about truth and theology and and all that stuff. And and I think that Rich kind of was breaking that down and showing, no, actually it's a marriage of the two. Um, and, and, and I got that just through, I mean, he was dropping some truth that was rooted in, in, in um, 
in biblical stories and things like that. And I think that it's not, I don't think it's one camp or the other. And I don't really even think it's favoring one thing over the other. I think that it's understanding and knowing, you know, Andy Stanley talks about how, um, you know, you have to understand and know that your faith is rooted in, in the resurrection. But it doesn't mean you have to check your brain at the door. And as a matter of fact, we have the ability to be able to love people um, by by learning about different cultures and by understanding and, and by helping um, others by not having to have them conform to us, but us in some cases conforming to, to them and, and listening. Um, so that was what I got out of that. I, I really enjoyed getting to talk, which, you know, you and I both enjoy um, getting to listen to people who are different than us uh, regardless. So. Yeah, it was a great conversation. And we have a we have another great conversation that's coming up later this week. Tell them who it is. We are um, we're talking about kind of the title of the episode is going to be listening to sexual minorities. And we're going to be talking with Janet Dean and Michael Lastoria. And uh, they, they conducted a, a study um, over just the sexual attitudes, beliefs um, of, of college students on Christian campuses. And so we're going to talk with them about kind of what they've learned about from that. And so the best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. And it will just literally, whatever the episode drops, it will show up in your podcast feed. Also, the uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and write a review of the podcast as well. Let us know how we can continue to improve. And it helps us expand these conversations as well. Leave us some five-star reviews, homie. And let us know some of the things that you would like us to talk about. And literally, you can do it in about 30 seconds. It won't take that long. And we would just really appreciate it a lot because it helps um, it helps us expand this conversation as yeah. well. Yeah. And also, follow us on social media. Go check us out on Instagram, on Twitter, and go like our Facebook page. It would be awesome. You can keep up with everything that's going on as well as just seeing my times when I do random Instagram stories. Yep, and so we have one for the uh, we have stuff for the Lurus Corner, and then we have our own individual stuff as well. And you'll be looking us up on you know Caleb Mason and at Todd Duke at Todd Duke. So thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.